Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right David? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is... Move! Get out of there! George, move! Move down! Move down! Get out! <laughs> About eight years ago, I had some time off from homicide, and I went to D.C. with my, my daughter, who had played on that, around that ship, my oldest daughter, who run around on that very ship. She's a lawyer today. And, and we went to the spot where we were, I was standing, and I was telling her how, years before, I had stood there listening to Dr. King's speech, and a... And a um, a bus pulled up with uh, a bunch of children from Japan, and they ran out, got out of the bus, and they ran towards me. And they were—I I couldn't understand what they were speaking. I was speaking their language, but there was one thing I, that blew me away: was the fact that they all were saying one word, alien. <laughs> <laughs> and at that moment, it was so spooky because. I'd realized that the dream had come true. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Patrick Green. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great. This is a, an episode that I've been waiting for for a long time. This is an episode that I, I wish we could have recorded earlier, but Alien Day and all the madness surrounding that kind of got in the way a little bit. But this has been something that's been on my mind now since March 15th. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm really grateful to be able to talk about Parker's legacy tonight. I'm really grateful also to welcome back a guest who was here well before I was on the show. I remember actually hearing him on a round table back in like the Obama years. <laughs> this is like a very long time ago. Um, and we'll, uh, I, well, Jamie, do you want to go ahead and introduce him? Yeah. Well, our guest today is someone that I've known for a long time, Christian Motzka. Christian and I met on the Wayland yutani Bulletin years ago. He and I were both admins of that group for a little bit together and then you left probably two or three months after i became an admin and then i eventually left the admin ship um but we've been friends ish on facebook yeah. ever since a part of the same fandom um and back in the day when uh, peter was my main partner for perfect organism uh, and w when I was still an admin for the Wayland Dutani Bulletin, I thought, hey, let's get all of the admins on the show and talk about, I think it was Alien 3, wasn't it? I think it was the lead up to Covenant. That's, was it? That's how. I don't remember. I remember going on and on about the, the, the image of a patch and how excited I was for the costuming. It was the, the Covenant 
um, ship patch and okay. it, it looked better to me than the ones from Prometheus. And so that, that was my, you know, that's my memory of that. Okay. Well, at any rate, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Much like we do with everyone else who comes on the show, we'd like to know where they started their fandom. What movie they started their fandom with, who introduced them. For a lot of us, it is our fathers, it is our parents. We're probably going to do an episode covering that. I think I even talked to you about that at one point, Christian, um, which we are going to do at some point. Um, but we, that is, for me, that's one of the most interesting pieces of having guests on the show, the community, what was, what was that like for you in the beginning? Okay. So for me, aliens was, was the first one that I saw and my dad showed it to me. And so he was, um, he was ex-military, but he went from, he, yeah, weirdly, he started in the Marines and then went to the army and then became um, a farmer and then a Lutheran pastor. So sort of an interesting continuum in his life. But for some reason, Aliens, especially because he had a crush on Sigourney Weaver, was an important film. And so he showed it to me, you know, younger than he probably would have. And so I very much associate that film um, with that time period, but also I can't help but associate it with him. And, you know, there's this this strong Marine character in Hicks. And he died uh, just before Alien 3 came out. So in a lot of ways, Alien 3 is a... Um, it's a, a way for me to mourn because it was the perfect time. Like, of course this movie comes out and it's bleak and the Marine is dead and everyone you care about has died, you know? Uh, so that, that the finality of that film really resonates with me. And it took me a lot longer to come around to alien. Like I, I loved it, but it was always my, my friends and I would watch alien and aliens, alien and aliens. And I was waiting for aliens to start because that's where the, you know, the things that I had, had kind of gravitated, gravitated towards come into the films but now it's sort of like alien is a perfect film and really could almost stand on its own and aliens is my favorite film of all time i love that movie but alien 3 is the perfect ending but it's gut-wrenching you know i i haven't actually watched it in a very long time because i can't help but associate it with these these early feelings so that's interesting. That's interesting. I think Alien 3 is my favorite, but it's also the hardest film for me to watch because I associate um, the Ripley that I meet at that time, the finality of her death, how important she is to me as a character in my life, um, not wanting to see her go through that again. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing when stories really, they surround your heart and they grab onto it without your control of it. Um, and it's your story. It ends up being your story. And that to me is why films are powerful, why stories are powerful because it becomes your own. Um, and that's, yeah, I, I hear you with alien three. Uh, I do, I try and I listen to the score probably two or three times a week, but the film itself is it's, it's a lot to get through for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie, <laughs> you, listen, you listen to so many scores every week. I'm, I'm, I I'm going to keep a running list of this at some point. The, of how many the times secret of Nim every day, the, the black stallion <laughs> every day. day. Serendipity. Interstellar, uh, probably three times, times a week. Day? Three times no. a day? No. I just sit in front week. of my computer 24-7, you know, I'm serious, for my job and everything. So all I do is listen to music. <laughs> it's, well, the, the Alien 3 score is incredible, so I don't blame you for that whatsoever. Sorry, Christian, go ahead. The Alien 3 score, I think, is the best. It's, it's the most... Um, I, I actually don't know much else by Elliot Goldenthal. Is that his name? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it's, for me, that's it. That's, that's this beautiful piece. Whereas when I hear the other ones, I can't help, you know, James Horner is James Horner. So it's like, okay, I'm, I can hear the Star Trek three borrowings and, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the, the, once I knew about in, in the alien score that they had cribbed a little bit of music from Freud, was it from one of his previous movies and, and shoved it in there uh, for the, the scene where the acid is dripping through the floors, but that wasn't even written for that movie. You know, it right. just, um, there's also something the, the score for alien is so orchestral and it has, it feels very seventies. Um, and we're, we're, as the movies go on, they, they each sort of embody the, the decade that they were made in. But when you get to alien three, that score, Oh man, play that at my funeral. That's just beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. That'd be a pretty well, epic funeral. I gotta say that, I, that, I feel like the <laughs> score of alien feels, I, I, we've talked about this, Patrick, it feels nautical. It feels like I'm on a ship on the sea. I love it for that reason. And I know it's sort of cobbled in some places, much to the chagrin of, um, Jerry Goldsmith. I was going to say Elliot Goldsmith. <laughs> I did that on the episode. I said I Elliot Goldensmith. Yeah. But yeah, I, I love that score, even though it wasn't what he intended for the film. Uh, it's it's so unique. It's so it's so wonderful. Also, though, it's worth noting that Howard Hansen's um, symphonic work is also very prominently fe- like the, the actually in our show in the credits, you'll hear it. <laughs> it's not actually Jerry yeah. Goldsmith's music. That being said, though, yeah, I think it's an an incredible masterpiece. You know, so I'm not not shitting on it whatsoever and i have to say i i still think that um that jed kurzel's covenant soundtrack holds up extremely well i have to say like, i still listen to that quite a bit and that oh. feels very much of its decade to me too i i don't care for the i don't care for the parts where it is echoing alien so much but the there that sort of haunting quality to yes. it is, is very very yeah. different than the other films yeah okay can i give my kevin my covenant spiel Go for it. Yeah, go for it. Do you guys know what an exquisite corpse is? The it's a uh, a parlor game from uh, the Victorian age or something. You you take a piece of paper and you fold it into thirds, and then you hand it to one person and and they draw the top of the picture of a person, you know, the the head and shoulders, and then they fold it over and they hand it to the next person and they draw the body, and then you fold it over again, you hand it to a third person, they draw the legs, then you open it up and it's ridiculous, you know, and that's the that's the joke, the, the hideous corpse, exquisite corpse, excuse me. Anyway, that's what Alien Covenant feels like to me, that you have the whole beginning up until David shows up, feels like one take on, on a prequel to Alien. And then everything from, you know, David's entrance until probably the, the, uh, the chestburster scene or something is, a, is another take um, and then, then from that point on, it's it's almost like this is what really Scott felt the studio wanted him to do. Like, okay, here's the alien bullshit, and here's the spaceship, and here's the airlock, and there you go. But taken as as individual pieces, there's something really interesting about the first two. I don't like the second one as much, but um, someone recently uh, pointed out how much it seems to borrow from um, gothic romance, and especially if you've ever heard the story of Bluebeard's Bride. This yeah. this you know, there, there's this um, literary tradition of these very uh, clueless protagonists who are in a, in a dangerous place and make stupid decisions as part of, you know, tropes of this genre. And it, 
I don't think it necessarily belongs in the movie, but that's definitely what's going on. It's like, oh, fiddly dee, I'm going to go take a shower now. Like, what? What are you doing that for? You know, so if you can compartmentalize it, there are very, very interesting things happening in that movie. However, for me, Aliens is Alien, Aliens, Alien 3. And, and that's, my, that's my solid trilogy. And I said earlier that I thought that Alien was an almost perfect film. And the, the only reason I say that is because the journey that Ripley goes on over the course of three movies, if you take away the second two, I don't think that her role in the first film is actually as impactful. But when you, when you have the full trajectory of her story and then you, and you watch the first film again, I, I it just, it, it enhances her performance so much. So. Yeah. And I think that actually segues pretty nicely into some things that have to do with Parker in this film too, if, which, which I hope we get to talk about tonight. And one of those things is heroism, right? Yafet Koto, when he signed on for the role, knew, although there's some great mythology around this that I hope we'll unpack tonight, but that he didn't, he ended up not wanting to die and that he was sort of going back and forth with Balaji Badejo on the floor and things. But like, but the long and the short of it was he, he ultimately decided that he, that he was okay with this character dying because he didn't want to be pulled into a franchise and he wanted to get back to work on other things. And he wanted to like be there for this moment in history and drop everything. And then he wanted to go to the next project. Um, and he, you know, because of that felt like you know, he could afford to be more like overtly heroic. His portrayal could be big and brash and he could, you know, be a protector and he could do all these great things and he could die with this glorious character death and then just kind of go into history, which he did, you know? And for the intervening 42, 43, what year is it now? 2021. So 42 years since this movie came out, um, you know, he has been in in the history books for all of us, even though his only appearance was this one film as one of a, an ensemble of characters. Parker has been a continuous presence in our lives and in our hearts, in our fandom, in the artwork that comes out of it, in the cosplays that come out of it, in the dreams we had as children. I mean, for me as a kid, obviously, I'll, I'll go ahead and start us in the Parker stuff if that's okay, because we might as well get into it. When I was a kid, you know, Sigourney Weaver and, and Ripley obviously was the most sort of overt, um, you know, protagonist for me to be, you know, following. And I've talked about this, you know, ad nauseum, but she reminded me a lot of my mother, um, you know, even just the way that she looked with her black hair and things. I just, I really, she imprinted on me as a mother figure. Um, but Parker was like this completely different, almost like renegade protector figure that was so cool and so funny. I mean, he's so funny in this movie. He has so many great lines that just get thrown away because he just says them under his breath and they're so funny. Um, and Parker is a character with so much charisma and so much like staying power. And I feel like he, uh, it's not, it's not, you know, it's, it's funny because his death was in the midst of just so much loss writ large. You can talk about it in terms of the film, obviously, you know, we lost one of the main producers last year. We lost another, you know, we lost Ian Holm last year, you know, David Geiler. We lost so many people. We lost, uh, Ron Cobb, we lost just so many titans in this film. And we had gotten a little bit desensitized to it, I think. You know, it's almost like we had come to terms with this idea that this movie is getting old enough now that people who were middle-aged when they were making it are probably getting pretty old. And that there's, you know, this this tragic realism that we're going to have to get used to, which is that we're going to be losing a lot of people from the film. And then Yafet Kodo dies, you know, at the tail end of a year... At, at, well, at, in the springtime, actually, of a year where we're still trying to dig ourselves out of COVID, where we're still trying to emerge from these cocoons we've been, you know, in for so long now. 
um, when we're so tired of crying and mourning that we're not even really aware of the passage of this stuff anymore. And Yafakoto dies and we all cry, you know, and we all feel it. And, um, and he kind of like, his loss for me really shook me out of this weird kind of torpor that I'd been in, where I had um, stopped realizing how important the loss of these people was. So yeah, that's a kind of a long and meandering way for me to tee up for you guys a little conversation on Parker tonight in memoriam of Yafet Koto, in uh, remembrance of his incredible contributions to cinema, you know, not just with Alien, but with other things as well. And what he means to many of us personally as a, as a really heroic protector figure who made us laugh and made us on the edge of our seats in this incredible film. is really interesting in Alien that we often, something will happen to a character and then we cut to Parker and Parker tells us, you know, what he saw, what he witnessed and a lesser actor wouldn't have, have been able to, to give, I mean, when you watch Yafet Koto in that role, he is 100% committed in that moment to the emotion, the fear that just, um, you totally believe that his best friend has just died. You totally believe that the captain has disappeared, you know, um, and the, the the whole business with Lambert, you needed someone who the audience would, would feel the, the struggle. He doesn't want to hurt her, but he wants to kill the alien, you know, to, so the film really d- depends on his ability to, uh, to deliver that kind of very, very raw emotion. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I, I'd like to take a step back and just even talk about the setup for who Parker is. And, sure. And, uh, and a lot of that has to do with who Yafet Koto is. Um, as an actor, he was already breaking barriers as an actor himself. He was on a procedural, p- procedural at the time, which was Homicide, Life on the Street. So he came from that, and he was doing other things. He was in a Bond film. He, he had been, he had lived a life in terms of being an actor where he broke barrier after barrier and alien was no different. And one of the things I love about one of many things I love about his presence in alien is that he's not a jive talking brother. He's not, he doesn't do any of that. His whole setup, he's funny, but he's not funny because he's trying to be funny. He's funny because sometimes things are funny. Sometimes he's irreverent, some, like like we all can be. Those those, and that can be funny. He's not a comic relief whatsoever. He's just he's an irreverent, Im, um, immense character, and people are are a little bit uh, intimidated by him, even though he's not the captain of the ship. And his whole setup and his whole the way he's presented to us, even in the beginning when, you know, they get up from the the cryo tubes and he's, he's sitting at the table. You are, you're brought right into these characters. You're brought right into who this man is. He's talking the loudest. Um, He's talking over people. Um, And not because he's wants to be bossy, but he's passionate. He's a passionate personality. And again, he was not, presented as this oh the black character 
He was just a character. I don't even see his color in, in a way. And I don't, I don't, and I think that that can be divisive because I think we should see color. I think that's important. He is important as an actor and a character be, in part because of his color. Um, and as someone who is, you know, I, I have a father, a, a black father who they, he, there's some similarities there between the way that they look when Yafet Kota was younger. Um, and to see someone portrayed like that, especially in the seventies, um, when films, there was black exploitation going on at the time. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, there's a lot of negative portrayals of black people. Um, and there continue to be. Um, but you had this set of filmmakers and writers think let's go beyond let's take this a step further they sort of did a star trek where they thought let's let's remove those things that trip us up the sexism the racism all of those things so what we were presented with were a group of people not black people not white people not men not women characters and i love his character so much because he came off like a character and not as the black man in the movie, not as the stereotype, not as the jive talking guy. Um, and that to me, when I think of Parker, those things come to mind. It, it uh, As someone of color, that is what a hero is to me. That's how you portray someone from a race that I belong to. So I loved the setup. Um. I, I want to go back to the humor point that you made for a minute and then loop around. For, so something that I, I, I continually am impressed by with Yafiko's performance in this movie is that, as you said, his humor is never intended for anybody else. Like sometimes there's sort of an in-joke when he, like when he looks at Lambert and he's talking about what he wants to eat, you know, there's, there's moments like that, but a lot of his humor is like, you, you, you'll miss it if you're not listening closely, partly because the ADR is not great, but also partly because he's, he's doing it under his breath. Right. And so many other movies don't do that. There's this performative is mm -hmm. performative aspect to so many films especially contemporary movies where everything is delivered with this little kind of like a, oh did you catch that like look at this little wordplay i just did there's this awareness of the audience that is, is so it takes us out of the immersion so much but with alien part of why it feels so realistic is because it feels like there's no audience there like it feels like we're like in the crew walking around hearing this stuff right and and because and when you're in a real situation like that you don't need to, you know, make sure your every line, you know, lands perfectly. Like that, pe that person would never last a minute on this ship because everybody would be so fed up with them, right? But Parker able, is able to bring humor and levity to it, but mostly just keep himself from getting bored because he just like he went there to like make money and he's like ready to get back. He wants to go home and party. He's had enough, and it's not getting there yet. And he knows it's a bad idea, and he's getting grumpy about it. So he's going to make some jokes, you know, and give people a hard time. So I think that that treatment of humor in the film something we've literally never talked about in any real way before, but it's something that I think is really important. People don't don't think about humor when they think about Alien, but a major reason why Alien works and holds up as well as it does is because there is humor in it, and the humor in it is very much part of the characterization. It's not part of, like, let's make people laugh and slap their knees in the movie theater. It's it's like, let's make this a real, a real environment for people, and real environments are funny and offhanded and weird, you know? But going back to, um, you know, his, his race and how significant his portrayal was in that regard, this movie was really personally important for Yafet Kodo. And that's something that I think has gotten lost a little bit to history, but you can find many interviews with him where he talks about it. He had been offered other parts. This script was sent to him. He was somebody who was originally up for the role of Hunter, as the part was originally called, not Parker, right? So when, the, so Guyler and Hill, when they rewrote the script, 
made it into Parker. They named it after, named it after a football player, it became this whole other sort of a thing. And that was when the script was getting sent out. So we saw this character that was sort of primordial, right? It was taking O'Bannon's idea of this hunter character and this, you know, rewrite idea of him and Brett having this really close dynamic. And he just said, like, you know, I would be a black guy in space in this movie. I haven't seen that before. And then he also found out that Sigourney Weaver was up for Ripley, and he was like, and the lead is a woman. He's like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be a part of this movie. I'm going to be a part of this historic moment. And he waited for months and months and months and months and turned other things down just so he could do this movie. And that's why, again, he didn't want to be part of this whole franchise forever because he wanted to move on when it was done with it because he lost, you know, a significant amount of his, you know, career waiting for this movie to get made. And then he was at Shepard and Studios for like months and months filming it. But my point being that he was aware of how important that was when he was filming it. And what I want to point out also is that there's, you know, if you go back to the 70s in cinema, there's definitely the black exploitation stuff that you're talking about. But there's also the sort of, you know, the actors who were of, you know, different races who were trying to kind of, I'm not, I, I shouldn't say trying to pass as being white, but they were playing roles like Sidney Poitier that really kind of spoke comfortably to white people, I think, because they could be, or sort of the Denzel Washington thing in his earlier career, where like a lot of white people were like, now that's a black man I can stand behind, you know, because they were very comfortable with the way that he was acting. But, um, and I, that's not taking away from Sidney Poitier or Denzel Washington, they're both brilliant actors, but you get what I'm saying culturally, there's, there's this element to that. With Yafet Kodo, there was never any question when he was on screen that he was playing a black man. He wasn't trying to be anything other than what he was. But the reality is that what he was wasn't a caricature. What he was was a guy, you know? Um, and I and I love how, like, you know, Jamie, what you're saying is so true, that when we watch Alien, we are not unaware of his blackness, just like we're not unaware of Sigourney Weaver's femininity. They're not pretending that those things aren't there. They're still evident, and the ways that they act are informed by those things, sometimes but um the, the we, we see that after we see them we see them first as a real character and then we see other dimensions to them that bring that brought them to this moment in 2122 on a spaceship so that yeah I, I i i'm glad that you brought both of those points up yeah we certainly we engage their humanity then we see them then yeah. we see who they are which i think is how you should live you know, I think that's that's the great disconnect in life uh, between factions that are warring, political factions or whatever, is they stop seeing humans. They stop seeing each other as human and they see what they're representing. And, you know, we know where it goes from there. Alien is often praised for uh, highlighting a, a, the, the class structure that Americans like to pretend doesn't exist. But you clearly have the officers who are who are they're going to get paid more. And then you have these lowly engineers but on top of that, there's an interesting little twist that Parker is the engineer and Brett is his assistant. So you have a black man who has a white man working for him and it's never commented on. It's just there. You know, if you listen to the dialogue, you pick this up. But the humor, my favorite thing he does is when Parker tells Ash, you know, excuse me, that's my seat. And then he does a little brushing movement like there. Oh, there's some like what would Ash of all people have left in that seat? But, you know, you got to just clear it off a little bit where you know, the, the subtle way um, Dallas tells Parker to go to work and Parker pushes back. He's going to finish his coffee first. You know, you don't say that to your boss normally, I would imagine, but Parker does. And there is a, um, there is a definite quality to, you know, he fills the space that he's in and, uh, and he doesn't mind if he, if he offends other people. You know, there's that great moment when, uh, when Ripley has come down to, to make sure that, uh, 
Parker and Brett are doing their job and they've got the, the steam going. But Ripley wins the argument. And so when he turns the steam off, Parker's like, shit. Brett's like, what's wrong? What's wrong is that, you know, she got in the last word. She got the better mm-hmm. joke, you know? <laughs> so there's this competition that is, is really fun to see play out. And I think that you get the sense he enjoys winding Ripley up, but he does respect her and does not respect Ash. <laughs> does not respect Ash at all. The, the dynamic just briefly with, with Ripley and Parker in itself could be, you could write a whole tr- you know dissertation on that. I think it's, it's so, it's so interesting both from like a gender and, you know, ethnicity perspective, but also just from the perspective of they're both people who are super capable and have a lot of like leadership abilities, but aren't in leadership capacity for most of the movie, right? And they're being forced to lead in these kind of weird circumstances. Um, and when they interact, it's, it's, there's all these things informing that. And that was obviously on the set was something that Ridley was playing up quite a bit because he was having them antagonize one another somewhat during the filming process. Um, but also like, the way that that the transference of power happens, right when 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 Parker decides to go along with Ripley's plan, um, is a really genuinely powerful moment that feels like more than just two characters deciding to follow a course of action. It really feels like two humans deciding to follow a course of action, and I love how quickly Parker goes along with it. There's this wonderful moment, right, where where like it's they're kind of neck and neck and neck and neck and neck, and they're talking about drawing straws and all these things, and then and then um, and then Ripley wins the argument, like you're saying, right? And Parker goes, "Okay, let's get to work." Right? <laughs> I love that. I love how he's just like he just fucking wants to go home and party, and he is just going to do whatever it takes to do that. And and he and I, I love that about him. To your point, Christian, about the chemistry between Brett and Parker is. Brett is always waiting for Parker's lead in everything. Like, and then even later on, Ripley even knows that Ripley knows who's in charge. And she's like, he's like a parrot. Like she's telling Parker, like your assistant's like a parrot, you know, like she's talking to Parker because only Parker can get through to Brett. And that's, and that's how it goes. And you're so right in terms of like, you have this white man, I mean, if we look at it on face value, you have a white man working for the black man. I mean, that's that's unheard of. It's certainly at that time in 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 film. But also, I think it's really important to make note of what was happening in film in the 70s. Things were exploding. Things were changing. I mean, you had like uh, one of the films that I love uh, with Jane Fonda called Clute. Well, she she plays a prostitute. Um in New York City, and that film just flipped the script in so many ways, and and that was happening a lot. There was a lot of films in the '70s that were coming out that were pushing the boundaries, that were pushing up against old stereotypes. They were saying, "No, we're not doing that anymore. We're doing something different." Um, and even the sense of realism that's everywhere in films made in the '70s, and very evident in alien where people are talking over each other and sometimes it's hard to make things out but that was a specific choice that they made to make films feel real because hollywood came from a history where it was all so scripted and everything was so perfect and picturesque um nothing felt real so then the 70s rolled in late 60s 70s the late 60s is when it started then the 70s rolled in and you had these filmmakers who grew up, who were growing up in the 60s and the 50s, and they're like, 
yes, we love movies, but we don't want to make those movies anymore. And so, and they were also seeing the disparity between people of color. You know, they were at the, they were at the end of the civil rights movement. I mean, not like it had ever ended, but it was the size that it was that era in the civil rights movement was, was coming to an end or it was really quieting down. And a lot of, a lot of the films were reflecting what those consequences were, what had changed, what was changing. And again, to bring it back to Parker, Parker was really evident of where things were, what people were thinking about black people, what people were thinking about equality. And one, um, anecdote and i know you guys know this and i feel like it plays into why we see parker the way we see him is there's a scene in the extended edition or the director's cut of alien where ripley hadn't didn't want to you know let ash and and or um dallas and kane and lambert back on the ship because of course kane had been infected he had a parasite on him whatever and so eventually ash lets him on board and Lambert is pissed off, but we don't really see that in the theatrical cut. You hear it in her voice a little bit, like, let us open the fucking door, you know, like, let us in. So in the director's cut, you see Lambert come and slap Ripley, and Ripley falls to the floor. You guys have seen it. I've seen it. But they removed that scene from the theatrical cut, and I loved that they did, because so many times in movies, the only female characters there they don't get along. There's an animus between them. Um, and that's a lot of times how men write women. They think, oh, this makes women interesting to pit them against each other. So their removal of that scene gave Ripley and Lambert a solidarity as opposed to an animus, as opposed to an adversity. And it works so beautifully. And bringing it back to Parker, they removed anything that would have made him seem like you would have seen in a black exploitation film. They removed all of it and they just said, just be you. And that's who we saw And every decision they made. And, you know, as we all know, much of what we're seeing of Parker comes from Yafet himself. He brought that to the character. He, he made the character, the way he said the lines, the way he, his presence, why we love this character is, has, has as much to do with Yafet Kodo as it does the writers and Ridley Scott. Um, we, I, I, I would even go so far as to say that we can thank Yafet Koto for his character more than we can thank the writers in Ridley Scott because he knew where to bring it. He knew how to, to deliver it. And it was happening in this bubble, in this, in this moment in time where they were like, no, let's, let's get rid of all the excess. Let's not make Ripley and Lambert enemies. Let's make these people a team. Let's make these people engage their humanity. And it worked beautifully. Dan O'Bannon and Ron Chassette uh, wrote genius and simplistic words. If you get a script of that movie, it seems very simple, not complicated. But there is very complicated because the, the personalities are all complex. So it's just a a tour de force of creative writing. I love that you have Dallas and you have um, Parker. It's sort of, you know, once once Kane has been immobilized, you have these two strong guys. Because obviously Brett's not going to take a stand and 
And, you know, the, the, the 1979 audience is looking for the strong male lead, right? And so Ash is, and Ash is shifty. Whether you, whether you think that he's a, a villain or not, you still get this sense that um, maybe he's not, he's not going to be the hero. You just know that. So you have, you're left with Parker and Dallas. And Dallas, when Ripley confronts him, he's like, I don't know. I just, he's the science officer. They tell me what to do. He completely defers to Ash. And at, at 44, I can totally understand why he's so just downtrodden. <laughs> like, I really feel that in Dallas. But Parker, even though it's just one line, why don't you freeze him? He's already come up with a solution. He already knows, all right, you let him on board the ship. Why don't you freeze him? And, and he's right. If they had frozen, potentially, if they'd frozen Kane, none of this would have happened. But I like that dynamic of, you know, your, your white character, he's not going to, he's not stepping up to the role, really. And the black character, again, it, it doesn't have to be about um, uh, race at all, but the character of Parker is, is coming in with ideas. He, he wants to see something happen. Um, and that's just was a nice moment. And that's what I, I, I want to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I got to say about that. Well, I, I love how Parker continues harping on that in the background. Like when he's not even on camera, he's like, why don't they just freeze him? <laughs> he says it like five times. And the audience, of course, is going, yeah, that sounds yeah. like a good idea. Yeah. Right. And it's also interesting to note, I hadn't really thought about this, but when Ash lets them back on the ship, it does not register. And I'm sure it didn't register when I was seven, seeing it for the first time either. It doesn't register as a heroic act, although it kind of should in terms of like Hollywood filmmaking, right? Like we're used to the character who breaks the rules to do the quote unquote right thing being heroic. And when Ash does it, it's a testament to the filmmaking, obviously, that it reads so clearly, but it doesn't feel like a moment of heroism, even though he's doing the quote unquote, you know, heroic thing. But back to Parker for a second. Um, you know, those moments off camera, like that one where he's, where he's again, harping on why can't they just freeze Kane? Um, those moments where he talks about what the reason why nobody comes down here anymore. It's your personality, right? When he's talking, giving Brett shit. Um, a lot of the the dialogue in it that feels improvised because of Yafet Koto's performance wasn't. A lot of it is actually in the script. The personality line, I think, was improvised. But what was amazing is when you go through with the actual shooting script that they used, you realize that he is on book for the vast majority of it. Um, and it's such a testament to Yafet Koto's performance style that he can come across extemporaneous like that. And I think that um, it's not that that's a lost art, but it's an art that's very much in keeping with the cinema verite traditions into which Alien was born, right? Like Jamie was saying, the conventions of cinema in the 70s were so dissimilar from conventions of, of cinema in the 50s and 60s, especially in Hollywood, right? Which this is technically is Hollywood because it's a Hollywood studio, even though they made it in England. But you go to, you know, European cinema in the 50s and 60s, and they were already doing all the things that we see, many of the things that we see in Alien, but Hollywood was sort of oblivious to it. And then once it hit Hollywood in the 70s, everybody started making these great things. And you started being able to get away with performances like that, where, you know, characters were speaking under their breath, where characters were out of frame, continuing conversations on, where characters were talking over one another, like Jamie said, where characters were kind of inaudible. And Yafet Koto is, a, is an actor who I don't think I would have cast in this part. Because to me, Yafet Koto reads too charismatic. He's too larger than life, you know, like in a lot of his other portrayals, like when he's a Bond villain, for example, he's just like so magnetic. He's such a presence on screen. And in a cast where like everybody is playing their presence down so much, I would have thought, you know, had I been the casting director, that 
Yafit Koto wouldn't have fit into that. And it's such a testament to Yafit Koto as an actor and as just a, a member of an ensemble that he really did. He like brought himself to this level where he came across like just one of the crew, even though he broke out of that frequently. He never came across like he was, you know, hogging the screen. He was never chewing the scenery. He was always just adding to it and he was always reacting in the moment to it. And that as an actor is such a hard thing to do, especially when you have a script in front of you. Because at the end of the day, even if you're if you've memorized everything and you're off book and you've rehearsed it a thousand times, you're still reading somebody else's words fundamentally. But Yafakoto over and over again in his career did this thing where he started taking on the characters that he was playing. He started taking it very personally, right? Like he started saying, you know, I think my character, like he's and talking about his role in in um, the Bond franchise, saying that he never saw his character as a villain because his character had his character's motivations were totally sound, right? Um, and so like, he was always kind of surprised, even though he knew he was playing the, the antagonist, he was always surprised when people would mention that because to him, he never saw it like that because he played the character in a real way and he saw things through the character's eyes. And I really get a sense that a lot of the amazing dialogue and the interactions that Parker has in Alien come from this sense that, that Yafit Koto over his four months at Shepardin became one with this character. He really understood who Parker was. And that's why I think when you see things, for example, like this, you know, the shares argument that comes up in the intro to this episode, and also we've talked about a few times, you know, you're absolutely right, both of you, that it's it's worth pointing out that Parker's the one bringing it up, not Brett. But also it's worth pointing it out because he would be the one bringing it up because he was a black man. Like he was, he was used, I mean, at least in our universe, used to systems not valuing his work as much as white people, right? Used to people trying to get away with, with stiff arming him. Um, and, well, and I think let that me push back on that a little bit. I don't think that he was pushing back as a character because he was a black man. I think he was pushing back as a trucker in space because truckers in space historically would get the shaft. Um, I don't. I, I think it has less to do with him being black and more to do with being a grunt. And you're towing. A, you're a towing vehicle. Who cares about you? That's probably you know. Sure, they worked for Wayland Utani, but I think that they were past the 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 skin color. And I think it was, but they were still dealing with workers' rights um, and what was fair and what is fair. And uh, I think even some of what we were seeing in terms of the tension between Parker and Ash had more to do with Ash was this higher up in the company. He was a science officer. He had more clout. He had more say. And him brushing off the seat was almost him saying, you ain't nobody, you know? This is my ship. Um, so I, that's just, of course, I could certainly be wrong, but I, I feel like for most of the, the, the way, like I said earlier, the way Bre or Parker is um, shown to us, the way he's presented to us, has very little to do with his color, even though we see him as his color. And I think it has more to do with, you know, the kind of, the kind of issues they're facing as those kinds of workers under those kinds of circumstances at that point in world history or American history or whatever, wherever the company operates. You definitely I disagree. Get the sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do, I do, I do, I do want to push back though for a second, Jamie. And I know that I'm, I'm the white guy on this episode, you know, saying this to somebody of mixed race, so I don't want to come across wrong, but, but when I watch the movie, his race is still very much like something that I'm, that I'm seeing at least, you know, that I'm not, I'm not saying it's motivating him. I'm not saying it's driving force behind the interactions that he has with people, but I'm saying that I can't help but notice that like the black guy is, is the one speaking up for not getting paid 
as much. It seems to me like at, at least and at least I think to audiences in the 70s that there was something significant about that, regardless of whether or not that was in this, you know, anybody's eye when they were making the film. Um, it seems to me like it plays on a lot of ideas of class and ethnicity and race and, you know, the ways that people treat each other that fe- it feels it feels relevant to me to bring that up, at least personally. Yeah, I, I think perhaps what you're saying how I understand it is it speaks to us where we are, you know, maybe not where he is, but it's, he's speaking sure, to yeah, issues that's, that's, that we're dealing yeah, with. Sure, and I, sure. and I think it's totally, I mean, you see, you look at, you know, the history of, of not that we want to get way off into the subject, but you look at the history of race relations and civil rights, who starts speaking up first? Black people do. White people don't say, Oh, like, you know, I mean, certainly there were white people who were rallying for the cause, but it was Harriet Tubman. It was Martin Luther King. It was so many other people saying, no, we count. We matter. Right. And I think Parker was doing that in his own way. I don't think it was about his race, but I think it was him being historically what we've done, which is to speak up. Um, where, when uh, certainly in a in a an environment where you're working for a conglomerate, speaking up is not something people like to do. Most people they go in, they clock in, they get they do their work, they go home, and they might think everything is unfair and nothing nothing is you know nothing is 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 the way it should be. But they'll all complain with each other, but they won't do anything about it. And I think there's a different. There are people. Who are like, no, this is wrong, or no, we need to make sure that we're fair. And I think Parker was one of that people, one of those people. Do you think, though, you know, it's it's an early insight into his character that he doesn't feel that he's being paid a fair wage? But do you think he actually could? You know, he's talking to the, the ship's captain, not to a higher up in the in the company. You know, is this a is this a conversation they've had multiple times? Is this something that is a sticking point for him? Because Dallas is very dismissive, but not in a. It's not rude so much as I've gone over this with you. So the sense that I get, I'm just kind of curious. It's one of the first things we hear from him, you know, and, and he's he's coaxing Brett to to uh, to speak up and all this. Um, I just wonder, like, is it is it a cause that he's fighting for, or is this this is just the the you know they think they're about to dock. They think they're having one last meal, and then they're going to call Antarctica and they're going to, you know, land on the planet. Um, so is this like his last ditch effort before they, they're, they're back on, on Earth to try to affect the amount of money he'll get? Uh, and what does that say about him as a character? Yeah, there's a lot of history there in those interactions, right? It's you're totally right. And Dallas literally says to him, like, "Yeah, we've been through this before. You know, you'll get your share." And and it's and 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 Yafet, yeah, Yafet uh, Parker is is clearly not taking it. He's like, "Yeah, but let's like be specific about it. Like, can we get this in writing somewhere?" And then and then of course every step of the way when they when they you know disembark and they go onto the onto the planet toyed, and when they go back up and then they have to wait longer because of the containment protocol breach. You know, the whole time Parker's like you know, this is like on the clock, right? Like, are people forgetting about the fact that we're still being paid to do this right now? And he has this like real connection to it. And it's I, I, something to me that always feels inescapably important about him is that he's a real, like he is a higher up in the company, but he's a higher up among the blue collar contingent of the company, right? He's a supervising engineer. This is a guy in his mid forties. He's been at this job for a long time. He is a, he is, as we said, supervising, you know, an, a, a very capable technical officer, but underneath him, engineer, 
Um, you know, he's somebody who like has been on a lot of missions. He's done a lot of stuff and he's excited to go back home. You know, he's rotating off. Um, and yet he's still not being treated fairly for that time. So of course, of course, the race, you know, may or may not have anything to do with that. Who knows? But, but I, I think it's, it's indisputable that Wayland Dutani as a corporation gets away with mistreating people a lot. And the people who tend to get mistreated often are working class people, are people who can't, you know, they can't organize against, you know, management. They're people who can't take the time off to go protest. They're people who can't, you know, they can't get away with, you know, not going on a, on a mission to spend more time with their kids, because if they don't, they're going to lose their house back on earth. You know, like he has been through the ring around this for decades. And the, and the Parker that we see in this film is a Parker who's like fed up with this bullshit, you know, and, and there's something really refreshing about that also, I think, and something really humanizing about it, because we talk all the time about this truckers in space idea, but we don't talk a lot more about that beyond just the aesthetic of it, right? I feel like truckers in space has become this sort of shorthand for talking about cassette futurism, right? Like when we talk about truckers in space, we talk about the fact that they're just sort of driving in a dingy truck and they're kind of like walking around. They don't look, you know, flashy. They're not like, you know, they don't look like they're in Star Wars or Star Trek. They just, they're just like very regular Joes kind of walking around in the ship. But there's something really like more, I think, philosophically important that we should bring up more about that, which is that they are working class people in space. And that as a trope, is something that like I don't think has been done at all outside of Alien, has it? I mean, it's always it's always the exceptional people. It's always the people in Armageddon going to blow up an asteroid, or it's the people in Star Trek going to explore the great beyond and you know colonize worlds and meet other races. It's never just the people who are just trying to make a fucking living and get home to see their kids again. Um, and that still t- today I think rings so true in a day where income inequality is so incredibly rife, where people are treated like shit all the time by corporations who get away with it every step of the way. These themes like speak incredibly well to us in our modern world. I think. I'd agree. I, I think for me, in terms of truckers in space, I don't know about you, Christian. Um, when I've always, when I've used that term, when I've heard that term, I have always thought blue collar people in space. That to me is what it means. It means. Uh, the lower class, these are the jobs that you get. You're not going to go explore new worlds unless you're pulled to a new world like they were. You're, you're, you're doing the grunt work. There are, there are people out exploring like on the Prometheus or whatever, or like you have the covenant. They're going to a different world to colonize it. And then you have the people who are the grunts. Um, and they'd like to do more, but this is the only job that they can get. Um, and that to me is what a trucker in space is. Um, but I also think to your point though patrick it's these people we're seeing i think one of the reasons why alien is so um why it makes it such a, a a grand impression on me and definitely fandom is that much like aliens these people are relatable these aren't these crazy rich scientists speaking a language we don't understand in terms of what they're doing, what they're researching. They're just like you and me. And they're like, Oh, we're in this situation and we got to make the best of it. That's why this series has been so amazing, I think. And that's um, what I hope it gets back to is that everyone was relatable. Everyone felt like you and me, everyone had a job they had to do. We weren't all happy doing it all the time. And we had to make, make peace with it. And, it is so embodied in the characters in Alien, the best, you know, and then, of course, we have aliens. And even in Aliens, you had Marines, but they were grunts, too. They were just doing this grunt work of, of Wayland yutani They were nobodies. They were nobodies. They were expendable as well, as much as the crew of the Nostromo was. And then, of course, you go to Alien 3 and you have prisoners on the planet and they were 
expendable too. They were they were no one. Um, and they, they were, were trying crud. to. Yeah, they, they were crud. crud. <laughs> <laughs> they think we're we're crud. <laughs> that's a great scene. There's this great trick that's pulled, isn't there? Where you know Brett and Parker have this tension with the officers because the officers are getting paid more on the Nostromo. But that's not the officer's fault. That's the company's fault. You know, the company is playing these two groups of expendable people against each other so that, you know, you have this, this weird class tension over a percentage. And in the end, they're all, they're all going to get screwed over. The, the company is willing to let all of these people go. And, you know, w- when you get to aliens, there's also, if you watch the extended cut, there's this nuance because you have the, the company guys in their, in their blue shirts with their little tags, but then walking around behind them are the grunts again. You have these, you know, the, the guys in the hard hats and the rain slickers that clearly aren't making enough money because that's why the Jordan family is out there. You know, they're wildcatters. They're trying to strike it rich because no one's getting paid enough in this, in this entire universe. Um, when you get to Alien 3, uh, you know, Aaron says that, that he's, he's about to finally get out of here. I think he even says he has a wife. I might yes. be making that up. No, say it? Okay. I have a and wife. Daughter. I have a kid. Yeah. I go home on the next rotation. There you go. And Andrews has a, fa- has a photo of his, of his wife and kids on his desk that you can see. Um, who are these guys? You know, why in the world would you, you know, who did you piss off to get this assignment? This is such a terrible job. So that kind of stuff resonates. And in this past year in particular, the line crew expendable, you know, when we've seen all of these, you know, these heroes, these frontline workers that we're going to, we're going to clap for them, but we're not going to pay them more. Just, you know, you're, you're seeing this real squeeze right now. And these films resonate with that. You really do get that way more than, you know, Star Wars is Star Wars and Star Trek is Star Trek. But that utopian future of, of Star Trek, I can't, I can't find myself in that. And, uh, you know, you think about Yafet Koto being offered the role of Lando Calrissian in Empire Strikes Back. I can't speak for him, obviously, but I can't imagine him bringing his level of realism and commitment to the role to that role because it's such, it's fun, but it's such like cotton candy, you know, you get to wear a, a fancy cape and shoot a, a laser pistol, but um, you know, you hear the stories uh, on the set of Alien towards the end of Yafet Koto um, trying to track down Ridley Scott and Ridley would have to go in through different doors because Yafet was always like, hey, I've got a new ending. I've got a new way that my character is going to do this or that. Um, I, that had to have been part of his process. Like he was so invested, Patrick, like you said, like he, he becomes this character, even if he knows that, you know, in the end, obviously, the character is going to die, the alien is going to get him, but he has to go through this process of bringing this emotion and, and this ingenuity to the role because then it shows up on screen. You get this sense by the end, he, he's absolutely trying to survive. He absolutely wants to get onto that escape shuttle and get away. Totally. And, and he's invested in others' survival too, which I think is something that it's, it's, it's easy to forget about with Parker. Because it's easy to, to watch Alien and assume that everybody is heroic in it because they're all fighting against this, you know, terrifying thing and they're all being fucked over by the company. But um, for the most part, the crew is sort of in it to get out, right? They're, they're just trying to get off the, the ship. But Parker, like, has a number of moments, like, you know, for example, when he's looking, you know, when he's... Uh, uh, searching with Brett, you know, and they're using the motion tracker and they're looking in the lockers and things like that. Or when he's helping Lambert get the canisters out. Um, 
or when he's, you know, confronting Ash with a flamethrower. Like, there's a lot of moments where Parker does things that um, are kind of dangerous for, in terms of his own livelihood, but he does it, like, so that somebody else can get out with him. And that's something I've always just really appreciated about Parker. You know, you brought up a great point earlier, Christian, where you were talking about Ripley, how, you know, the Ripley that we get in Alien is an incomplete character compared to the Ripley that we end Alien 3 with in a lot of ways. Um, and part of that is because, you know, Ripley had to sort of go on this journey on her own to to emerge as this, you know, hero. Whereas um, Parker gets this little tiny bit of time in this first movie. And in that tiny bit of time, he has a fully realized arc, you know? Like, he wakes up and he is the funny, grumpy, whiny engineer, right? Who you just sort of love because he's just the life of the party and he's just like, you know, comic relief and he's just cool, um, and then he goes through this and then he becomes the pragmatist. He becomes the guy who's saying like, why are they back on the ship? You know, why, why isn't he frozen right now? Like get out of the path of the acid. It's going to burn you. Don't let it fall in your head. And he's pointing out a lot of these very real hazards to people, right? He's the guy who is going to get them back off the planetoid because the, the ship is broken during the landing sequence, right? Um, he is indispensable in that way. And then he becomes something else in his third act, which isn't quite the third act of the film. I, I guess it's sort of, yeah, he dies in the third act of the movie. Um, but his third act as a character, his, his swan song is like really, truly heroic. He goes along with Ripley's plan, even though he knows it might be dangerous for him. He, he, does, he specifically points out, I'm not drawing straws, which I always loved that line. I love the fact that he was the one who very overtly said, we are not, like, we are all getting off this ship. We are not leaving anybody behind. Um, and then when Lamp and then he tries to save, you know, Lambert, he just has a lot of moments like that in this movie where he goes out of his way to protect somebody else or to, or to, to look out for somebody else. And I think that, um, that's something that really imprinted on me as a kid, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, one of them is, is that, you know, it's important not to judge somebody by their first appearance and by what you sort of think they're going to function as in a given, whether it's a storyline or whether it's your own life, you know, like when you see Parker in the beginning, you kind of assume, oh, he's just sort of the funny guy, you know, um, he's really a lot more than that as the movie progresses. Um, but it's also a lesson in how to be quietly heroic, how to stand up for somebody who's not as big as you, how to stand up for somebody who doesn't have as much say as you do and how to go out of your way to like fight for what's right and to be persistent about it, to not to not get over the fact that you're not getting paid as much, and that's bullshit. To not get over the fact that they should have quarantined Kane. To not let things go just because it's easy to, to let things go, because it's it's easier to navigate the world as a quieter person. Um, Parker was never a quiet person. And Yafet Koto was never a quiet man in his own life. And through a long career with many great roles on television and film and on stage, he proved that over and over and over again. And it's just, you know, I'm just remembering what it was like to get the news that he had passed and, the, and how surreal that felt to me, because he really was one of these actors who I just sort of had a, I, I, I had lost track of how old he was. Like, I wasn't really considering, <laughs> considering that, um, you know, and he was only 81. So, you know, it, who, who knows what happened? There was no cause of death revealed or anything. He just, he, he, he felt like somebody who was going to be there forever. And, uh, and that was, and his loss was, was a huge blow to a lot of us. And, uh, and I, and I, you know, we just rewatched Alien for like the 12,000th time, like a week and a half ago. And I was, it was the first time I've seen it since he had died. And I was brought back briefly, I'll make, I'll make this quick, but brought back to when the first time I saw Blade Runner after Rucker Hauer had died, mm. um, which, which for me, that was, that was actually overwhelming for me. That was, that was a really hard experience. Um, Parker is not as, you know, fundamental to Alien as 
bad he was in Blade Runner, like in terms of, you know, there's just a lot more characters and there's more going on. But Parker is such an indelible part of that movie to me that watching it and knowing that he was dead uh, was really hard. It really sucked. Um, and, and I think that it'll probably take me a while to get past that. Um, but, you know, I will. And 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 I, I will partly because that character is, you know, there whether or not Yafet Koto is here. You know, that character is, is, is a part of real history. And I'm thinking back to when we had John Sorensen on for Alien Day, you know, the miniature artist. Um, and he was talking about, you know, his legacy and about being a part of this film when he was a young person and realizing as it was happening that it was history, you know. And I'm thinking like, you know, these people really did make something histor- truly historic. And that is an amazing thing. And Parker is a historic character by every stretch of the imagination. 100%. Uh, one thing that I've noticed as I continue to watch Alien over and over, like everybody else, I think about Dallas and that scene where Dallas, where Ripley confronts Dallas, like, what's going on? He's like, I just run the ship. He's like, and they, they brought ash on blah 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 blah. and then there's another scene where you see dallas sitting in his office or wherever he is and he's listening to music and it's this very he's in the narcissus during yeah um parker's the hardest working guy in that ship dallas just kind of he just runs the ship he just makes sure everybody and so you have this system that's on display and Ripley's a little bit caught up in her role. She wants to do more. She wants to have more say, but she doesn't. She's a first officer. She doesn't really have any power until something happens to Dallas. Um, but who's down there in the in the in the basement, quote unquote? Parker and Brett. Parker leading it up. Parker making sure the ship can get back off that planet. Parker letting them know, yes, we can go. Yes, it's good enough. What do we need? Parker's doing. Parker went to look to see if maybe Dallas's body was there. Parker went to see what happened with Brett. He was the one reporting, this thing is huge. No blood, no Dallas, nothing. It was Parker every time going out there, having the courage to see if maybe he could find them. And of course he didn't. He He was the hardest working person on that ship. Not just because... He had a lot to do as an engineer. Certainly that's the case. But he wasn't going to take no for an answer. He wasn't going to take, oh, we can't hear Dallas anymore. He was going to go look for him. And he went in that vent, risking his life to see if perhaps Dallas was hurt. Maybe Dallas is still in the vent. Maybe Brett is still somewhere there. You know, and of course, again, that was not the case. But he was the hero of that story. Um, and he made it to the end with Ripley. I mean, of course, he, you know, he, he was, he succumbed to the alien, but not a lot of, there's not a lot of people talking about when we do talk about alien, what this man was doing on this ship, um, how he was leading the ship, not just vocally, but his actions. What is, you know, he went to get the oxygen with, with Lambert. He told Lambert to get out of the way. I mean, over and over, like, I think Patrick, you were saying, like, he was like, don't get under it. Don't get under it. Like at every turn, this man is like, what are we doing? No, like giving you reports, doing the work um, that no one else was doing. Everyone else was kind of either scared or they were collating, you know? And I I just wanted to bring some recognition to how powerful that, that character was in that film. I mean, doesn't he have the line, you know, give me 20 minutes and he comes back with a flamethrower, 
you know, like the implication is he went and he, he put this thing together out of scraps that they had, and that is their weapon. You know, the thing that Ash made is bullshit. That's potentially designed to get them killed, the, mm-hmm. the, the motion tracker. So yeah, he, he's the most active of the, he's possibly the most active character in the film because even mm-hmm. Ripley for the first half, you know, she, she's kind of asking questions and, and she wants to maybe have a look at this or whatever, but she's sort of holding back. Uh, once Kane is gone, Kane is, Kane is obviously the active participant that, that leads to, you know, his unfortunate demise. But after that, no, you're right. It's Parker the whole way. And for all that, I think that Lambert is sort of the, the audience surrogate, you know, she's in there to, to be feeling the fear that we should be feeling. It's Parker who is at the very least, he's, he's offering good suggestions and he's, I never thought about, of course he had to go into the, um, the air duct to, to see if Dallas was there. And so later on when Ripley says, well, let's just do it again. Let's, you know, let's go back in there. I think that he objects to that because he did go in, you know, he knows how, how awful it would be. Um, that's very interesting. And she's going to do, she wants to do again, what just got Dallas killed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which is, which is it, a new idea. Yeah. You have to present yeah. a new idea. And, yeah. and that's why he's calling bullshit on it. Like, no, yeah. It, yeah. you know, don't send another person in to do the exact same thing. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll have to go in to dig their body out, you yeah. know? Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. He's a truly indispensable part of that crew, you know, and, and, and he dies in a sort of Dylan-esque way, speaking of Alien 3. Right? Oh yeah. Where he dies heroically, he he dies in in defense of somebody else's life. He dies because he draws attention away, you know, from by the creature, um, and he does that like with full intent, you know, probably knowing that he's not going to make it out alive. He does it anyway. Um, yeah, if if it weren't for Parker, not only would they not have realized the creature had grown, they wouldn't have made it off LV four two six. They wouldn't have lifted off again. You know, if it weren't for Parker, they would not have had an incinerator unit. If it weren't for Parker, Ash would have choked Ripley with a magazine. If it weren't for Parker, <laughs> the Ash, you know, android having been decapitated would very likely still be able to control the mother system somehow. He went back and burned it, you know. If it weren't for Parker, uh, it, just so many things wouldn't have happened. He's at the heart of that film. And, and it's and it's really astonishing to me that people don't really acknowledge that in any in any real way. You know, we, we I mean... Part of it's because of the films that came afterwards, but but and part of it's obviously because Ripley is just an incredible character, and Scorn Weaver did it, and you know a legendary job with that character. But Parker really was like the heart and soul of that film, um, and and I think that he, I'm I'm glad that we're getting a chance to sort of talk about that tonight because I think it deserves to be talked about, and I, and I and it's something that, um, I don't know if I ever was as consciously aware of it as I as I have been since coming on this show and talking about him more. You know, I always loved Parker, but I don't think I ever really considered why. I never really considered how how instrumental he was to everything that happened on that ship and into Ripley making it off alive. If it weren't for Parker, she would never have gotten to the Narcissus. If it weren't for Parker, so many things wouldn't have happened. And that's just amazing. Badass. Absolutely. Uh, one bit of anecdote in terms of Yafet Koto, his name Yafet means beautiful in Hebrew. Um, he comes from a very um, uh, storied, like his mother and father. Um, I think his father was involved in theater. Yafet played Othello on stage. He has a very, he had a very rich career. Again, in every in every um, aspect of his career, he was breaking the mold. 
He was doing things that other actors hadn't done. He was shortlisted for Jean-Luc Picard uh, before they cast um, Patrick Stewart. I mean, he was he was on everyone's radar. He really was. And I think it's really, really important to mention that without Parker, we would not have had a pwn. Without Parker, we would not have had, um, I guess you don't like the cornbread either. I mean, even though that was more of a funny line, it was a throwback to Parker. If without Parker, there would not have been a Dylan. Dylan is uh, a direct response to Parker. He's very different than Parker. He's much less, he's much less soft. He's much, he's much, he's not as warm as Parker. And people might think, well, you think Parker was warm? Yes, I do. I think Parker was a very warm character. I think he was, he was fatherly in some ways. He was a protector, like you were saying, Patrick. And Dylan was not any of those things. But Dylan had a bit of a change in Alien 3 that channeled Parker towards the end, where he, cared about Ripley where he was like, Hey, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Um, and that only happened because Parker was who he was and because Yafet Kotal played that role. There's an interesting, I, I always start my sentences with that. Let me try something different. <laughs> In all three of the original films. Well, first of all, there's what I call the idiot trilogy, uh, idiot trio, which is you have uh, Brett Gorman and Aaron where each of them, they're, they're, they're dim. They have to have things yeah. explained to them, but I love them. The, the, I, I associate very strongly with these dim-witted guys. They're like, no, this is what you have to do, right? <laughs> then, you, then you have the trio of uh, Dallas, Hicks, and um, I just lost his name, uh, the, the, the doctor in Alien 3. You know, Clements. 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 Yeah. All three of them are, they're a little bit shy, they're a little bit held back, reserved, and, and they're potential love interests. For Ripley, but then finally you have um, you have Parker, you have Hudson, and you have Dylan, who are they're brash, they're in Ripley's face, they're loud, and she wins them over. She convinces all three of them to settle down, follow her plan, and they all have heroic endings. They all die so that she can complete her mission. Um, but and and I, you know I wouldn't want to draw a comparison between Hudson and Parker completely because obviously Hudson is, is intentionally he's there for the jokes, but you know, whoop de fucking do is his response to seeing Ripley for the first time. And, <laughs> and she has to put him in his place. She has to give him a job. And then, and then he's able to, to calm down and, and get on with his, with his mission. But again, you needed Parker with all, all three of these, these echoes that I'm seeing in the later films, it starts because they're there, you know, because you have, um, uh, Yafet Koto playing the, the role the way that he did, it sets the mold. Like, yeah, 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 we need somebody for, for Ripley to to slam up against. But then, you know, part of her journey is that she convinces these people to go along with her. You guys like to always mention the photo where it's Ripley in the foreground and everyone is laid out behind, you know, in, in each of these movies. But you have to have the first film setting that all up. And, and oh, man. It, this this conversation has really shown me how much, again, you know, the how integral Parker is to the success that Ripley has, and the same way that I think that Lambert, like I said, is is sort of a, a an audience surrogate. People reject her if they're uncomfortable with the amount of emotion that she's showing. I think similarly, some people might, white people, might reject Parker because he is a little bit overbearing or a little bit. 
you know, he's not a Denzel Washington. I hate to say that, but, you know, um, he might push people a little bit. There's a little discomfort there that is fascinating because it's so real. And Jimmy, like you were just saying, there, there is a smile that he gets a couple times in the movie, usually when he's talking to Brett, uh, where his eyes are almost glistening. Like there's, there's a lot of love there. And, you know, Brett's my favorite character in the entire, the entire series. I love Brett. And, uh, and so Parker is, is, you know, he's his hype man. He's his, he, he kind of, you know, he gets him to, to speak up. He gets him to think about things. Um, I just love it. There's, you know, Brett would, wouldn't say a single word if Parker weren't there to help motivate him. So I got to love Parker. If it weren't for Parker, Brett would be functionally mute. I mean, <laughs> he's right. the only person he talks to. Yeah, but again, right. but, but but part of what's so great—I mean, it's another dynamic that we we haven't even really talked about in any depth on the show yet. You know, yet is is just their their relationship is so interesting, right? It's it's not codependent. Right. It's like they, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's it's like they 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 bring out the best in each other at at at, at the at the very essence of their characters. Parker is a, I would say, is a is a protector or like a guide character. Like, and I think for Brett, that's what he functions as. He's just like you said, Christian. He brings out, you know, Brett's confidence. He he helps him to feel more, you know, at ease with people because Brett clearly has struggles with that. Um, you know, I think Parker, his default is always to go to shift towards protecting, to shift towards you know helping. Um, and and Brett, I think, is a great technician. He knows what to do. He doesn't want to put on any airs in terms of social interactions or anything like that. He doesn't really give a shit. He's just kind of there to, to do his job, and he loves his job. Um, but like, but but Parker is Brett's gateway to people. Parker is the guy who like gets him in on the jokes. Parker sticks up for Brett all the time, right? I, I love I love that. There's this quiet dynamic there where Par you get the sense that Parker has stuck up for Brett before because people probably think Brett's a little weird because he's always <laughs> off on his own doing his own quiet stuff, and Parker like treats him like he's just as cool as Par Parker's the fucking coolest person in the movie. Obviously Parker is like a very cool guy. Everybody would love to be his friend, right? Nobody wants to be Brett's friend except for Parker, <laughs> right? Except for Parker. And he's the kid who, you know, when you're going through a fit, like, you know, when I was in middle school, I had an extremely awkward time. And, you know, he was the, the popular kid who would be like, Hey, you know what? Why don't you come over to my house? You know? And like, not, not feel embarrassed about it. Like he was the guy who who would you know stick up for the kid who got beaten up on the playground, um, and and that is a dynamic that I think is great, and I also think it's great because it's really authentic you know friendship. Um, it's something that we talked a little bit about on shoulder of Ryan last night. You know, it's it's pretty rare that we see like real male loving friendships on film that aren't tied to war, or that aren't tied to things that I don't want to say like necessitate friendship because obviously like you know friendship is born sometimes in conflict or it's born through trying to survive something together or something like that uh, but a lot of the time in, in hollywood movies it's like male friendship is either played for laughs like for no homo jokes or it's played for like we're brothers in arms together you know going to battle it's pretty rare that you just see really good friends who are really different from each other and just like really appreciate each other's company and this whole movie you know at least as much of it as brett is in with parker you know we see that dynamic just so eloquently stated they're just two buddies who look out for each other and are very dissimilar and yet that's part of what's so great about them now have you guys talked at all about the um the crew bios that the, the biographies yeah, the nostromo, yes, the nostromo right. files yes. yeah and, and how uh, Dallas and Parker are veterans. They, in fact, they were, um, I think they were in a prison camp together. 
And there's this whole weird backstory that maybe that's what was written. Maybe it wasn't. I think I'm, it's a little controversial where those come from. But anyway, um, you don't see that on screen at all. I don't get any sense that Parker and Dallas have that kind of, like you were just saying that, you know, brothers in arms sort of, well, we, should, we were in Vietnam together. So now we're, you know, I don't, I don't see that at all, but I definitely see this very, very interesting and very, um, very believable friendship between these two guys. You're making yeah, me those... love Parker so much right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Th- those cards, those cards are really. We should do a whole episode on those cards. Although point, that, that's a those cards, story. though, were, were didn't Cameron write those bios for Aliens? Oh. Well, there's two no, different no, sets. No, Ridley, Ridley did them for Alien as well. Oh, okay. Somebody did, but I haven't, re- I haven't read the originals. I need to. Okay, so there's yeah, there's the set that supposedly is what Ridley gave the actors. Then there's what's behind uh, Ripley in the inquest scene in Aliens, right, in Aliens. on the screen, mm-hmm. and they're they're not the same. Sometimes there's there's interesting overlaps. Uh, so the the one in Aliens is where we learn that Lambert is actually uh, transgender, and and that Dallas had worked for the Tyrell Corporation. It's right there on the screen. You can see it. But uh, but these earlier ones uh, are very 70s. They're you know there's sort of a uh, a slightly more uh, Buck Rogers feel to them. Yeah. Um, but do you remember what Parker's job was in those cards? Crap. No. He was a race car mechanic. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And it, um, in uh, Iranistan, like they, they combined. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> that's funny. There, that one scene uh, when Ripley goes down, she's like, I'm coming down or whatever she says. I, remember when I was younger and I'd watch that scene and she would be there and they're on one side and she's on the other and there's smoke. And of course he's making it difficult to hear, you know, like he's, <laughs> he's giving her shit, but I always remember feeling like, I wish I was down there with them. It just seemed like they were having the best time. Like right. they were just friends. They were shit talking. They were drinking. It just, I, their friendship is palpable to me. Um, I, I, and I think we all have friends even in this show, myself and Patrick, or certainly myself and Patrick and Dan, who does Shoulder of Orion with us, we have a sense of that camaraderie where we give each other shit, but we have a job to do, you know. Um, I love how beautiful uh, they presented their friendship and how authentic it was and how also intimate it was, too. There's a real closeness. Like, you could, at least from my perspective, I there was something about Brett. He needed to be around Parker. Parker was his voice, literally his voice. I think Brett was probably more of a savant or maybe not quite a savant, but he was gifted to do what he could do. That's why he's on that ship. But he wasn't great with people skills. There's t- plenty of people like that who are really good at job. But when it comes to like engaging, they're like uh, awkward. I don't know what to do. And I think Brett was one of the, is one of those people. And Parker was just the companion he needed to be his voice, to be funny, and to get the job done. And it's just, every time I see them together, it's, it's perfection. The, the scene that really sums that up though, is when, when Brett lets the cat go with the, with a net <laughs> and, and he doesn't understand. He doesn't know why they're upset with him. And Parker doesn't really yell at him so much as, you know, he, he, he does this laugh that it's the stress laugh, you know, like I, I can't believe that you don't understand and you fucked this up, but you got to go deal with it. You know, you've got to catch the cat. And I don't know, there's, there's a few times where, where Brett has this, he's, he's completely out of his element. He doesn't understand what's going on. 
when, when the, pe- the pencil gets handed back to him with the acid burn, like just kind of looking at it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that, that, you know, the, their interaction in that moment is really telling. That's a great point, Christian. When, so when, when Brett, you know, fucks that up and Parker points out what's wrong, he is so freaked out for one thing and like, and, and genuinely jittery about the jump scare that he just had, but also the implications for this not being able to be trackable, right? But the the way that he deals with Brett is way better than I would have dealt with Brett in that scenario, right? Especially had I been a superior officer, you know, in terms of my, you know, my my rank to Brett, because Brett technically is like working for, um, for Parker. Yeah. But also just like, you know, like, I mean, Parker is like a huge guy. He's just like, he's, he's a powerful presence. And it would have been very easy for him to have intimidated Brett in that moment into doing the right thing. And I, I feel like, you know, on, on my worst days that I might have done something like that too. I might have been angry at Brett and, and, and yelled at him and, and told him like, you know, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Um, and then regretted it later. Parker doesn't do that. Even in the heat of that moment, he points out what happened. And then he very matter of factly says rightly that now you got to deal with it, right? And even though he's scared and even though he's, you know, overwhelmed, um, I feel like he does such a great job of, uh, of of still having that warmth with Brett that Brett really needs to to be himself. Um, so anyway, I, I, I know we need to wrap uh, soon. I, I, I just want to, you know, I guess in closing, just say uh, what a what a pleasure it is to talk about this character with both of you. Um, what a pleasure it has been to see the outpouring of love from the community for this character since, since Yafet Koto died. Um, and just what, uh, what a, what a, what a bigger part of this film he was than I think many of us realize until we sit down and really analyze it. And, you know, tonight we've gone through all the ways in which he was instrumental to the, you know, survival of, of at least of Ripley getting off the ship, but also just of people making it as far as they did, but also just to how much he imprinted on us. For many of us, we saw this movie as young people, as, as kids, you know, Jamie was in his late middle age when he saw it. For, <laughs> Jamie saw it from the fucking nursing home. I feel better because, um, me and Christian are the same age, so you can't. Yeah. You, you, you were in the nursing home together when the movie came out. <laughs> it was a real to real thing. A little, a little no, but but, but most of, you know, we see it when we're we see it when we're kids, right? Like my my children have loved this movie, and they they saw it when they went, when they were seven and four, right? Um, and there is something, and 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 again, this isn't necessarily to bring up race unnecessarily, but as a white guy, I, I will say that it was. I think it was probably a good thing for me as a young person to see a black character that I really looked up to and admired like that, who wasn't afraid to, to be exactly who he was, and who was not a stereotype whatsoever. Um, and it was, it's, it's, it's healthy for especially young people who are not, you know, of color or minorities to, to see that, I think. Um, so, so that's just from a personal perspective, I think, an, an, a, a, an important part of, of his character to me as a young person, but more, more than that. Um, I think it was a really great way for me to see how, how to be a better person, right? In times of conflict and in times of non-conflict, just how to be a better friend, how to be a better member of a team, how to be adaptive, how to be the smart guy and the cool guy at the same time, how to be tough while being soft, and how incredibly heroic it is to be funny. And I really actually genuinely mean that, and I'm not being facetious. It is really hard to wake up out of cryo sleep, I'm imagining it would be hard. I haven't done this yet. Um, but to wake up out of cryo sleep, find out that you're not home yet, realize you're not being paid as much as everybody else, and that you're probably late for a million things, and still make people laugh. 
there's something really beautiful about that, about the guy who takes the time below decks, even though like he's even more stressed out and getting paid even less than he was at the beginning of this whole shit show to make this, you know, taciturn friend that he has laugh at a joke while they're getting steam blown on their faces. There's something truly heroic about that. And I think we all have stories of people like that in our own lives. People who, you know, when they were sick, went out of their way to make us feel better. You know, people who, uh, when they were afraid, made a joke so that we wouldn't have to be afraid along with them. Parker is that person. And that's a really useful thing for us to see, I think, as, you know, as men, as humans, as science fiction fans. And, uh, and so in my final thought is just thanking Yafit Koto for doing that and for showing me the, the real heroism of humor at the ass end of space. Agreed. Um, I would say for my, I, I suppose, closing thoughts, what I love about Parker um, is that he has lived in me since I've seen Alien. Part of who I am and part of what makes me me is these characters I got to experience as a child. And Parker was one of them. I mean, obviously Ripley is really important to me and she's a big part of who I am as a person um, and has been fundamental in my own voice. But also what has informed that is Parker. Um, I am me because he was, because Yafet Koda was Parker. Um, There are characters in your lives, in our lives that give us a voice or that they tell us, use your voice. It's okay. It might be scary, you know, but you'll be okay. Use your voice. And Parker was one of those people. Um, so I, I will always, I, I won't see him the same way. Even based off this discussion we're having tonight, I'm going to look at him differently. I'm going to watch Alien differently now. I'm going to pick up different things from him. Um, he is as much a hero as Ripley was in in that film. And uh, he he left the story doing what heroes do, giving their lives for someone else. There's a great line from um, the second of the magician's novels by Lev Grossman, where that the, the hero doesn't win, the hero pays the price. I'm pretty sure that's how it goes. That, you know, a bad thing may happen to a hero that doesn't make them not the hero. And so in this case, I, I agree. You know, the next time I watch this, I'm going to be watching specifically for Parker because there's so much more. Uh, he self-advocates for one thing. He's 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 looking after his own interests. And I, I, on some level, I knew how much he was looking out for Brett. But I'm this discussion has really brought that out for me as an absolute Brett fan. But also, I, I want to watch it because watch it again because, like we were saying, you know, he's he. He doesn't yell at Brett when Brett messes up. He doesn't hit Brett, you know, but he does send Brett off to his death. And while he doesn't do that knowingly, in the in the scenes that come after, I, I have to wonder if part of Yafet Koto's um, process as an actor is to bring that kind of realization, you know, when, when he's talking about um, what they find, it, you know, he sells it. And that's, like I said at the very beginning, the thing that he does so well is he sells these, these moments that we don't get to see. And uh, I just can't imagine the film with a, with a different actor because he is so present for those moments. But for, for his death, for Yafet Koto's passing, I think that what separates it from something like Harry Dean Stanton or Ian Holm is that we knew they were older. We knew that Ian was sick, um, but 
I can't believe that 40 years have more than 40 years has gone by since this movie came out. And so I can't accept that he was in his eighties. And so um, the loss of him is also the realization that we're, we're going to lose more, you know? Um, and I'm not ready for that. So I'm, I'm so thankful that we have this, this movie that we can continue to learn from. And thank you guys so much for letting me part of the, be part of this conversation. Thank you. It was a really pleasure. I'm so glad we got to finally talk in, in person-ish. <laughs> thank you, Christian, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Hopefully you'll come back. Um, we're, you know, we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of Alien 3, which is going to be big for us. Um, there's so much more to talk about. Um, before we leave, though, just I just want to mention a couple of things. We have a... Uh, this great thing called Patreon and on Patreon, we have this show called frame rate where we review films and if everyone listening would, or everyone, yes, sure. Everyone, uh, those of you listening who are interested, please sign up. You can go to perfectorganism.com forward slash support, sign up for $4 a month. Um, all of your proceeds go back into the show to help pay hosting fees and many, many different things. Uh, perhaps they will go towards a live event maybe by the end of this year a very small one we'll see um less than a cost of a latte pervertorganism.com forward slash support and while you're at it give us a review on apple itunes all your reviews help the show get to a wider audience thank you everyone for listening for more on perfect organism the alien saga podcast please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.